people crumble at the thought of negotiating for themselves. The pressure of having someone come back at you with a counter-offer or proposition usually has your heart pounding in your neck until a compromise is made and you sign on the dotted line. If you want to negotiate like a pro, today we're going to show you how. You're listening to Real Estate Bright. Top experts talk about how to buy, sell, rent and invest right. Your host is Sue Langder. Are you a real estate agent who is looking to boost your internet presence? Are you tired of competing against the big franchises, knowing you have a more superior service, more experience and more market knowledge? But vendors don't see you through the smoke and mirrors. Why not create a weekly blog to help your community with top tips explaining your services with a side of your personality to bring your business out into the mind of prospecting vendors. At Real Copyright, we are experts in creating web content purposely written for your business to attract more clients. Give us a call on 5977-889 to find out more. The gorgeous Emily Wallace is here with us today. Emily is a young and vibrant buyer's advocate specializing in the first home and family home buying space. She's passionate about home buyer education to ensure all buyers are equipped with the knowledge to make a great purchase. Featured on podcasts including Millennial Money and Humans of Real Estate, welcome Emily. How are you? I'm very well and I'm so excited to be part of the show today. Thank you for coming on. It's a great privilege to have you on. Now, tell us what makes you different to all the other buyers advocates out there in Melbourne. (laughs) Good question. I think, look, all the good operators have very similar traits. Probably one of the things that uh, we do differently or do a lot of is sourcing properties through social media. So we actually do get a lot of off-market properties through our Instagram channels and LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, And that seems to be a relatively new concept in the space. So I would say that's probably what sets us apart is a bit more choice through different avenues. Yeah. Sounds good. Now, today's topic is called the art of negotiation. So what are the five top things that buyers do when negotiating to buy a property that end up making them miss out on the property each and every time? Great question. So starting with number one, number one would be that they don't understand or haven't taken the time to understand the vendor's um, motivation and the vendor's um, preferred terms. So um, if you're not asking the question of the agent, you know, what would be the preferred settlement or, you know, what's the vendor's situation moving forward, you may be missing a key part of your offer when you're negotiating a deal. Mm. If you don't understand, if they've bought already, for instance, they may be just wanting to get out. Correct. Or if they haven't bought, then time is doesn't matter does it really yeah exactly exactly so that's um probably number one yes um number two would be around price and I guess it's more so price and and value and understanding the market so often when people miss out on their 
particularly their first negotiation they miss out on and they miss by a mile, like they're really off on price. Mm. It's actually that they don't understand what's happening in the market and they're not reading it, whether it's a buyer's or a seller's market. You know, for example, might be a first home buyer reading a quote range of seven to 750. Mm. And in a heightened market, you know, the educated buyer would know that that's probably going to have an eight in front of it to, mm. to sell. It's probably going to be that margin. Whereas someone just entering might think, well, oh, if I offer 715, that's a really good offer and I'm going to get that property. And that's yeah. just not the reality in a seller's market. So yeah. that would be number two is not understanding values. Yeah. Vice versa, if it is a buyer's market, if it is that 650 to 750 range, you actually might be able to get the property for like 660. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So understanding the market's really key. Um, number three would be around uh, not putting a deadline on your offer. So um, in Victoria, the standard, once you've signed the contract, the buyer signed the contract, the standard um, yes. written in the contract is that it's three days that the offer's valid for. But often that's actually too long. Um, and, you know, certainly we as a company always put time pressure on offers. Um, so I would be, you know, putting a very firm deadline, but reasonable, like no less than 24 hours. And that's a bit too rushed, but putting a deadline on the offer so you actually can expect a response. Otherwise, deals can drag on for ages and you can really lose out on negotiation because other buyers are going through the property, seeing the potential and putting in offers that are more attractive than yours. Yeah. Good advice. Number four. Number four would be, um, I think the biggest thing is the communication with the agents. So sometimes um, negotiations don't go as planned because the buyer isn't communicating well with the agent or they um, feel like it's not a collaborative approach. And I'm not saying that an agent wouldn't take an offer from a particular buyer um, if they had poor communication. I just think when you think about deals that you win, they're often because the communication is really strong. You're working together to get a deal done. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're really poor on articulating what it is that you're wanting and um, putting that forward in a really clear way, um, you probably have a better chance than someone who's sort of fumbling around or a bit unsure of, you know, what they're actually doing in the process. Yeah. So essentially, if you're going to an open for inspection and say, look, I'm happy to, you know, I'll give you 750 today. But then if you put it in a text message, an email or something, say, look, our terms are 750 on 90 days, you'll have mm-hmm. a better chance being taken seriously with that than yeah, a casual correct. conversation. Yeah, and just being responsive to the agent as well, having your phone on you and answering their calls and, you know, working together Mm. on it um, is always going to be a better outcome, which kind of does lead into tip number five, which is it's not an offer unless it's signed. Like an offer in a text message, although it's a great starting point and emails are always a great starting point to articulate what you're after, until you've actually signed a contract of sale, it's not a presentable offer. So people often underestimate that. They're like, oh, no, but I told the agent, you know, what we want or I sent them an e- email or I filled out a one pager that says what I'm what I'm intending on doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not actually legally binding in any way, shape or form. The only way an offer should be presented and accepted is on the contract of sale signed by the buyer and then presented to the vendor and if the vendor agrees to be signed by the vendor. Yeah, and you could do that many, many times, couldn't you? 
yes, <laughs> definitely. Endless cycle sometimes. It is. Now, how often does an agent reject an offer without even approaching the vendor? It's an interesting one. I think there's sometimes, I would assume, because obviously we're heavily on the buying side, but I assume there's cases where agents don't even bother taking the offer to the vendor because it's just so low that they they already know that the expectation is beyond that. Or they've previously had an offer higher than that particular price point and that higher offer was already rejected. So therefore, you know, it's um it's irrelevant. I wouldn't be able to say for sure on what percentage or anything like that, but I would assume in the cases where it's just a ridiculous low ball offer, um, they may not even even bother, but it's also how it's documented. So every agent should be taking any documented offer to a vendor. So if it is signed on a contract, um, you do, do need to get a reply from the vendor as to what the outcome is of that offer. Yeah. And again, it's all about t- uh, reading the market a little bit too, because if the market is taking a bit of a, a drop in the cycle, you know, yes. and a vendor may have rejected an offer at say seven fifty three weeks ago, but yes. the market may have changed and it's probably closer to seven forty this week, you know. Um, Correct. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, exactly. Knowing that market, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Now, what do agents feel are attractive properties of a negotiation for them to get the vendor to seriously consider at the offer? So obviously there's price, mm-hmm. but there's other elements to it as well, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. So as we touched on before, it probably comes back to, you know, um, I think agents hate the question, like, why is the vendor selling? To be honest, that question is irrelevant to some degree. I would more want to understand what's the vendor's next move. Mm. And that a lot of that comes down to the fact is in your offer, um, does a longer settlement look more attractive because this, you know, vendor needs time to find their own property? Um, do they want a lease back option, like a licensing agreement for a period of time so that the settlement can actually go through so everyone can, you know, sort the financial side of things, but they do have some more time in the property, particularly when it's, um, you often find people who are downsizing from a large family home mm. um, into a smaller setting or maybe even into aged care. It can be a long process. Um, and so that option to have a licensing agreement in place for the vendor to rent it back from the new owner um, is also an option. Um, So yeah, definitely um, price is one, terms is another. And then sometimes understanding if a release of deposit is attractive. So in Victoria, known as a section 27, Mm -hmm. which is the early release of the deposit funds, which would otherwise just sit in the agent's trust account between it being paid and the settlement, does the vendor, you know, actually need those funds immediately to do something um, that might be pressing and obviously consulting your conveyancer as to um, how safe it is to release those funds based off um, the vendor's situation and how much of the property they own. There's a bit of legal and terminology in there that um, to be across on a section 27, but I have seen deals go through where, yeah, it's been on the basis of, yep, we'll release the funds. We're happy to release the funds to the vendor so that they can get moving with whatever they need to do if they're in financial distress. Yeah. Um, Going back to that uh, idea of leaseback, I've actually heard of um, like, for instance, I suppose, uh, experienced renovators liking to lease mm-hmm. back a property because they're like, okay, well, we need to find the next project, settle that, you know, and then 
get that project renovated. Yes. Yeah. But we've got the beauty of living in our beautiful renovation that we did for 12 months while it's yeah. happening. How good's that? Like it's a win-win. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's definitely a great strategy for people who flip, I guess, you know, yeah. in a cycle of flipping houses. That's kind of cool when you get to enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. Now, other things that I have found in the past in terms of negotiating um, with settlement terms, are like including little bits and pieces that you want from the property. For instance, mm-hmm. it might be a piece of artwork or that you know, I love the artwork, it really suits that wall, you know, any chance we can, you know, we'll give you this much more if we can include the artwork or, yep. or the cubby house or even on some of those lifestyle properties, you know, the, the right on lawnmower, like just imagine, you know, yes, turning up to these properties and going, I don't think I could do a push mower all the way <laughs> the place with this one. So, you know, what other things can get the purchase across the line? Yeah, so definitely inclusions, um, particularly if it's sort of taking it off the vendor's hands, for example, particularly in that downsizing situation, like large furniture. Although I would always suggest that you negotiate the um, non-fixed items separate to the actual property negotiation. So, for example, like, you know, usually the line says all fixtures and fittings of a permanent nature. And obviously you you should clarify those, for example, TV brackets or integrated fridges and things like that. But items that don't physically um, are not physically fixed to the property, general thumb, I would negotiate once the sale has actually gone um, through and everyone's signed, I would negotiate those items separately to sort of be, um, I guess, at a different, they're at a different cost as if they were being sold on marketplace or something like that. Um, but yeah, it can be enticing to the vendor to have, you know, a large majority of their um, items stay with the property when they, you know, move on to the next one and they don't actually need large furniture anymore or particular items that were maybe custom made for the property itself. Um, that can certainly be uh, helpful to yeah. all parties involved. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like for instance, you're going from a family home, they've got a trampoline in the backyard, which is in still relatively good nick. You know, their kids are beyond the trampoline. Yeah, we'll take your trampoline. Yep. You. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%. Large that's helpful. Thing to, to move, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're going to have a bit of a break and we'll come back with more from Emily Wallace, where she will talk to us about everything from combating the nerves to getting your A team in place before you purchase. Now you're listening to Real Estate Right and we are talking to the amazing Emily Wallace, buyer's advocate about the art of negotiation. So Emily, how can we combat those nerves when we are putting in an offer? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because if it's not something you do all the time um, mm-hmm. or you haven't had huge experience in buying property, it's it's like anything in life. It's a new event for you. So there's always going to be nerves. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is... Um, those nerves might not ever fully go away, but I think what you don't want to be doing is making decisions under pressure or under nervous energy. So um, really, you know, working with a level head to be able to take the emotion out of it um, when you're putting forward an offer and then um, limit the time that that offer sitting on the table so that you're not stressing for a couple of days in a row um, of what the outcome of that offer will be. We had some clients recently and we had, um, we'd put the offer in it 
12 p.m., like around lunchtime on a Tuesday, and we put the deadline for 6 p.m. on the Wednesday. But, you know, they said to us, like, Tuesday night, we just didn't sleep. Like, we were so nervous, we were so anxious. What was the outcome going to be? And um, that's probably hopefully only one night of lost sleep that, that people yeah. will have. But, yeah, it, it is um, a really uh, nervous time for everybody involved. Honestly. Big occasion. Yeah. And you really do need to have all your ducks in the road to feel confident, don't you? Like make sure yes. you've got that pre-approval done, you know, yeah. make sure that like you're ready inside to, to do all of this. Like, totally. ready, you know, the energy is not aligning properly really, is it? Yeah. And like, you want to minimize risk. That probably also, you know, calms nerves is minimizing risk. So going in with an educated, um, decisions so for example having the contract reviewed and understanding what terms would be in favor of you or in favor of the vendor and putting them as part of your offer um, to understand what your risk is as quite often we find um, special conditions that were written by the vendor solicitor are really heavy-handed and Mm. can put a, a lot more pressure and nerves on the buyer and so simply asking for you know them to be reworded or to be removed or to put that forward with your offer can um, help level the playing field so that you're not feeling like you know you're just meeting vendors expectation just to get into the property market um just remember that you know it is your you know potentially your property um and your risk that goes on the line so having a good conveyancer involved in the mix is really crucial yeah sounds good now sometimes especially when you're a first home buyer you get everyone's opinions along the way you get your boss your parents your siblings even the next door neighbor who should be the person you lean into when you're serious about buying Look, I think outside of the person you might be buying with, because, you know, couples buying together, obviously each other's opinion is really valid. Um, get a professional. Like I just think I, I often see particularly first home buyers, you know, mom or dad or both are really influencing, you know, how to buy the property and what's a better property when their last purchase may have been 15 years ago when it's irrelevant to the current market. Um, and it's not really a case of mum or dad knows best in that situation. It's actually, you probably need to seek some professional advice, um, potentially from a buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent to come in and just tell you how it is, you know, and then how it's going to go. Um, if, you know, having someone like that is outside of your realm or outside of budget, then um, be very selective in who you actually do involve in the decision-making process Um and ideally someone who's emotionally not invested in the outcome, like mum and dad are invested in the outcome because it's, you know, the property that they're, yeah, yeah, son or daughter's <laughs> going to buy. So yeah. um, probably not unless they've bought, you know, multiple properties in there or even maybe they're in the property sector outside of that. Um, and when I bought my first house, my dad was a builder and architect, so, you know, he knew everything about property. Yeah. Um, and oh, but it was 1999. And yeah, we were tossing up between two off-the-plan projects in Cheltenham. Yep. Um, one was a uh, so subdivided block, one at the back, and then the other one was side-by-side. Side. And yep. there was about a $40,000 difference in price. And mm-hmm. I liked the side-by-side side more than mm-hmm. the one at the back. I felt the one at the back felt, you know, when you've got living areas that work out to be hallway spaces so you sort of like you lose some of the living space because you have to allow for a hallway space yes where the yeah. side by side was like one long hallway big open plan at the area at the yeah. back and 
to me that was more appealing. Oh, yeah. My dad was going, oh, never had a loan over $200,000 before. You shouldn't be buying this one. You should buy the cheaper one. Like, oh. <laughs> and oh. so we bought the, the side-by-side because that's what we wanted. And, uh, yeah, three and a half years later we sold it for double the price. There and you go. And then he's like, oh, you've got too much money for that. You shouldn't have got that sort of money. I'm like, oh, cannot win. Can't win. <laughs> so I'm sure you've probably had similar experiences with family yeah Yeah, definitely and just um the involvement even when people have engaged our services you know we always do ask like who who has a vested interest in this property purchase um because what becomes hard is if you've got a guarantor loan in the mix where mum or dad or both are putting up their house of security for the purchase then they start to have a bit more influence and interest in the actual purchase itself that can be difficult but sometimes necessary um just to get into the market at the moment so uh yeah we have seen it play out where um, parents have wrongly influenced decisions um, in our professional opinion. Um, but at the end of the day, it's ultimately the buyer that needs to make the call. It's their property. It's where they're living and what they need to be happy with. And it's their, you know, repayments. Like they're the ones who have to front up money every month to pay the mortgage. So, um, you know, they need to be happy with it. Yeah, definitely. Now, who else should we be considering in our A-team before we consider the purchase? So obviously, in an ideal situation, a buyer's advocate would be, you know, the best person to be on your side. But, you know, there's other professionals as well, aren't there? Yeah. So, I mean, um, other professionals in that they specialise in certain things, so conveyances for the contracts, mortgage broker for the finance, building and pest inspector for the actual physical, you know, property itself. Um, yes. They all have their their place. Um, but what you will often find is that they are not licensed to comment on, um, the value of the property itself. Like they might have an opinion on what they think it's worth or they, you know, might be involved in real estate more generally. But for example, a mortgage broker um, outside of maybe getting a valuation report from a desktop val, they actually can't or they're not licensed to advise on mm. what a property is is worth. And it kind of seems a bit um, funny that that's the case because they're the ones financing it. But um many brokers, you know, they don't actually step foot in any of the properties that they help buy Mm. um, from a finance piece. They really should just be good at picking the best loan possible. So just be careful. Um, Yeah, be careful with that. Like a broker, I've sometimes heard of brokers bidding at auction for clients and I just think that's fraught with danger. Just be careful that the broker is just focusing on the finance piece. Well, And that's the thing, you know, they're lining their own pocket, aren't they? Yeah. Because the reality is if they overbid for you knowing that you can pay this off yes because they've already pre-approved that yes you personally may not want to go that high correct yeah 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 so you just got to be careful just everyone just stick in their lane that's what we like to say (laughs) however a good building and pest inspector yes can also align you with saying well hey wait a minute there's a you know something wrong here it's going to cost you 20 grand to get this fixed. You can use that in the, your negotiation, can't you? You can sort yeah. of say, look, you know, I'm not prepared to pay 750. I was before I had my, pe- you know, pest inspection done. Yep. But we're going to give you 730 because it's going to cost us seven, you know, an extra 20 grand to get this fixed. Yeah, definitely. Yep. You can negotiate once you've had that evidence backing that there's costs involved that you weren't aware of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, um, yeah, having a good 18 is worth its weight in gold as well yeah definitely um 
Now, how do we know if we have gone too high in the offer? Is there a um, feeling? Probably, <laughs> there's probably a bit, it's a bit hard to tell. I think the biggest thing is fundamentally you never want a valuation to fall short. So yeah. when you're placing offers and particularly in a, in a seller's market, um, yes, you want to secure the property and that may require you to go high, but not drastically high that it, that a bank won't value it within line with the market. So the only way you can really tell is to make sure that the comparable properties of recent sales, like I mean, in the last two to four weeks do stack up with what you're offering. Um, yeah. In a rising market, of course, your offer is probably going to be higher than the last sold property because that's the yeah. nature of a rising market. Um, but yeah, you just need to be very careful that you're not being ridiculous about it. Yeah. And I've actually gone through this process in terms of the figures and what this could mean in Mm. another podcast. But basically if you offered a million dollars and you've got your 10% deposit, you've got your uh, stamp duties or whatever else you need to do it, say physically you've got in capital a couple hundred grand in in your pocket. Um, If they've valued that at 900. Yes the bank will say, well, you've got to find the original, the hundred that we're missing yeah, plus having yeah. $90,000, 10% deposit. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Plus your 10. So basically it could be up to about a hundred grand out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to cover the gap. Yeah. You've got to cover the gap. And that's scary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's really, yeah. That's how, I mean, you know, in the industry, probably the worst case scenario for a buyer's advocate or buyer's agent ever would be that a valuation comes in less than what they paid for a property. Like that would be devastating. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So that's what we, you know, that's what everyone should be avoiding. Yes. Um, Cause most of them coming at the same, what, what you pay for it, what you put your offering in. I have heard of some that go over, which is exciting for the buyer. Yes. We've had, of- I've only ever had one go over by about 50 K and that was, amazing we definitely celebrated that but it doesn't happen very often usually it's at contract price um if it's questionable you know they do a full physical valuation and it might come in less and that's it's actually usually what it is is actually in the um, house and land space where you buy um you might buy land at the peak yeah and then by the time the land actually settles and the valuation rolls around it's dropped and you have to cover the gap that's probably where it happens the most to be honest and yes. off the plan purchases yeah in the outer suburbs yeah. yes correct yeah yes um now is there a foolproof way to get your offer accepted or um i wouldn't say there's foolproof because you can't control outside parameters of other buyers in the mix but probably what you can do the best is refer back to the five things we said not to do um, or yeah. what loses you an offer um, yeah. and just ensure that it's as tight as possible, as attractive as possible and just put your best foot forward. If someone else wants to pay more or has, you know, terms that are better than yours that you couldn't have changed, then unfortunately it is what it is. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, trying to make it as rock solid as possible um, and sticking to your guns is definitely key. Yeah, sounds good. Now, last question. You've got an amazing tip for first-home buyers and how, so how can you leverage options to get into the market faster rather than saving for a deposit? 
Yeah. So I think probably that's the stumbling block for first home buyers is saving this large deposit when we know that, you know, salaries are not increasing at the same rate that the market is, you know, it's becoming harder and harder and there's plenty of statistics out there um, explaining how long it would take to save a 10% deposit, um, even just, you know, as a bare minimum in some lendings, uh, lending spaces. So understanding the nature of a guarantor loan is really quite important. Um, So I'm obviously, I'm not a broker, so it's not financial advice by any means, but just understanding that a guaranteed loan is even possible. I know there's a lot of first-home buyers we've spoken to and um, we've sort of said, are you aware of what this is? And most say no. So a guaranteed loan being that um, instead of mum and dad or mum or dad or a family member helping with your deposit physically in terms of giving you cash or maybe a loan at a reduced um, rate that you pay off over time, it's actually leveraging the equity in their home, um, in the family home, to use as security against um, the property that you're about to purchase. So it doesn't actually cost mum or dad or, you know, either or in the respect that they're not physically forking out money to give to you they are using their current home and the equity that sits in that house to ensure that um, they can use it as security against your purchase a a good broker will be able to explain that in a lot more depth um, and it's probably worthwhile having a joint meeting with you know yourself maybe a partner as well and and mum and or dad um, to understand that but yeah that's an underutilized resource uh, in terms of getting into the property market and there's plenty of people who are using it to its full potential. The idea is though, we'll preface it with really you want to be buying well so that that security is off the property as, as soon as possible um, yeah. for the amount that they're, that they're effectively lending you um, because, yeah, you don't want them tied up in your property for years upon years. Yeah. Ideally, you're buying in a growth area where um, the new value sort of exceeds what they've put in and you can have them off the loan. Mm. So what would a normal loan, a guarantor loan take in terms of, you know, if the, if the parents were to be a guarantor, like would it be six months, would it be 12 months? I guess I, I guess it's like it's the 10% deposit, isn't it? So like you don't have any mortgage insurance, isn't it? it yeah, it is, but it depends how long, the, the, it depends how much, like how much of a percentage that the guarantor loan is holding. Like, for example, um, there are situations where the first home buyer is literally just covering um, stamp duty, if any, like maybe it might be 10 grand worth of stamp duty and costs. um, And then the rest of the actual deposit is made up in the guarantor loan. And that might be 20%. And then the, um, and then the actual loan for the first home buyer is at 80%, um, although they pay back the full amount over time. So what the um, the biggest thing is if whatever amount this is secured against mum or dad's home, you want the property to be growing so that you can take off take that off as soon as possible. So it would usually be, I mean, I had a guarantor loan to enter the market myself and it took two years um, mm. to bridge the gap. And that was high growth. Like it was, I think it was 15% in the end. Um and yeah, within two years, yeah. it was yeah. off the loan, which is great. Yeah. Um, no, anyway, thank you so much, Emily. Is there anything else that we need to talk about in terms of negotiation or we've covered all? I think definitely covered off on, on the key things. I think um, the, the yeah. biggest thing is to be firm and to be comfortable when you're putting forward an offer. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily, for all your fabulous tips and know-how. 
How can real estate right listeners get in touch with you if they want help buying their first property or their next family home and just want that professional backup? Yeah, for sure. If you just Google Emily Wallace or my website is literally just my name, emilywallace.com.au, you can find me and book a free discovery call. Um, Or if you're not necessarily looking for help, but you just want general tips, you can always just follow on Instagram and there's plenty of content there that I think dates back for a few years um, of tips to help you buy. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. Well, thanks so much, Emily. And we will have all your details in our podcast show notes and in our social media. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. That's okay. Now, next week is the first of our two-part series about aged care. This is a huge emotional and financial hurdle taking your parents from the family home they have loved for decades into an aged care facility. And we have Naomi Anderson from Aged Care Ready to explain all you need to know about the process. If you have concern about the physical and mental well-being of a loved one, this podcast is one not to miss. Real Estate Right is produced by Real Copyright, one of Melbourne's leading real estate copywriting companies, and is written, hosted, and produced by me, Sue Langada, with the support of my production and social media assistant, Lisa Fisher. All information given on this podcast is a guide only and delivered to help you understand the intricacies that can happen in real estate. We recommend that you get professional advice that is designed for your own personal circumstances. We would like to thank Podbean for hosting this podcast, Premium Beat for their music, Francis Morello for his voiceover, and Zoom for the recording. If you have a real estate story that is inspiring or a great how-to tip, please contact Lisa on 5977-889 to find out how you can be a guest on Real Estate Right in 2022. If you would like to know more about our copywriting services, please email Lisa at orders at realcopyright.com.au. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Right. It's where buyers, sellers, renters and investors get their real estate right.